Our scripture passage for today is uh, taken from 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, not just verses 3 to 5, though. Uh, we're going to look at verses 3 to 9. I say this because if any of the kids uh, were at Backyard Bible Camp, verses 3 to 5 were their memory passage, their memory verse, um, which I know always sounds like a bait and switch when we call six to seven verses your memory verse, but that's what we do at Hope of Christ. So this time it was only three verses, and uh, so um, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're using the Black Bibles, it's on page 1023. So this is First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father. It's hard to read this without singing, isn't it? It's, uh, sorry. <laughs> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not, see, though do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So there's a movie that uh, Amy and I enjoy. I don't know if it's enjoy, enjoy is the right word for it, but, um, but as with all of my movie introductions... This isn't a, I'm not backing this movie. I'm not even recommending this movie. I'm simply sharing with you that there's a movie out there that my wife and I have watched. Anyway, with that caveat, uh, the movie is called As Good As It Gets. And author uh, Melvin Udall, Udall, played by Jack Nicholson, uh, he, he suffers uh, tremendously from... Um, well, from severe obsessive-compulsive disorder. And one, in one scene, he's walking out of his psychiatrist's office, and he uses the wrong door to leave, and he goes out right into the waiting room where about six or eight other people are sitting, waiting, just hoping for some relief from their lives. And he looks at the waiting room, and he looks at everyone there, and he says, and this is where the title comes from, he says, 
what if this is as good as it gets? And one patient gasps, and you see the collective shoulders of all of them just slump a little farther as they consider that question. What if, what if this is as good as it gets? And I wouldn't be, uh, we would, it just wouldn't be right not to at least quote uh, this Sunday a French philosopher on Susan's behalf. Um, Jean-Paul, and I never know how to say his name, Sartre, Sartre, Jean-Paul Sartre. He wrote a play called No Exit. Well, yes, I'm not going to say No Exit in French. It was hard enough to say Sartre. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> but in this play, there's three characters who find themselves in hell. They're dead and in hell. And in hell, they are roommates. And it is an unending, unresting, like they've even been denied the ability to blink so that even that small amount of escape or exit has been deprived or taken from them. And one of Sartre's most famous philosophies comes out as one of the three characters uh, puts together why they're in hell and realizes uh, you are your life and nothing more. You are your life and nothing more. Is that true? Are we simply the sum of the things we have done and the things that have been done to us? Is that all you are? You are all that you've done for good or ill and all that has been done to you. Because if that is true, then really this is as good as it gets. And we, we really have no hope. Because uh, eventually you live your life long enough to realize that uh, doing better and trying harder is a lie. That no matter how hard you try, you always fall. No matter how good you get, you always return to something. And as things happen to you, and as you do things to others, you realize even the reality that even if you could do a bunch of good, it would never erase the bad you've done. Like, it's not a balanced scale. Like, you can't undo it. You can't unsee it. You can't unsay it. As I... Uh, as I uh, walked Alona through one afternoon in the bathroom when she was, saying, she was very young and saying less than kind things to one of her sisters. And so I took her in the bathroom and told her to squeeze all the toothpaste out into the sink, just all of it. It was a brand new tube of toothpaste. And then she got done and I said, okay, now put it all back. And so she started trying to put it back, and it just made a huge mess. And she was never able to get even a little bit back into the toothpaste tube. And I, and I said, you can't just say I didn't mean it. Like, words hurt. 
things we say to each other hurt each other. You can't just, I can't make up for cruel things that I've said to you by saying a couple of kind things today. That's, that's a hopeless hope. I mean, we would be miserable people if that was our hope. But Peter writes this whole letter to tell you there is more hope than that. Like, there is only one hope. In fact, 1 Peter, as you read 1 Peter, and I would encourage you to do that, it's a short letter. 1 Peter is one of the influencers in the name of our church. Hope of Christ. Because we need hope. You need hope. In a place where commutes are unending, and jobs are unexciting, and bosses and children and sometimes spouses are unappreciative, you need a hope that goes deeper than all of those. In a place where houses are losing their value, and 401ks and retirement funds are shrinking, you need a hope that is deeper than financial stability. And when loved ones are hurting or aging or moving or dying, you need hope that is more than just this temporary who I am. You need hope that tells you this is not as good as it gets. In Shawshank Redemption, Andy and Red disagree on the importance of hope. Red thinks hope is a dangerous thing that it can drive a man insane. But Andy thinks that hope is a good thing, (coughs) that hope is something that's inside of you that they can't take away from you. In fact, Andy says hope is a good thing, maybe even the best thing, and no good thing ever dies. And that's why I asked the music team to, play the song for us gone are the days like that first line hope in the furnace you know it can burn away slow or come out like gold and mine is walking the edge of the knife in the fire tonight I wait, but it's so hard to know, to believe on your own that you'll be okay when sorrow keeps chasing me down. Peter writes this letter to a people that he calls, he calls them uh, 
dispersed sojourners or displaced aliens. Not because that's what they actually physically are, but because that's how they ought to view themselves. You are, you are displaced aliens. You are exiles. You are not home. This is not your home, but you are not homeless. And he writes this letter of hope. One reason I, I, I included all of the verses in verses 3 to 9 and not just the, the passage that the kids memorized, I usually try to preach from something from Backyard Bible Camp uh, at the end of Bible Camp every year. But one reason is that if you look at verses 3 to 9 in your Bibles, in the Greek, it is one excruciatingly long sentence. So kids, you think you memorized three verses, you memorized half a sentence. So not as big a deal anymore, is it? This crazy long sentence, this is how Peter opens up this letter. Your hope in Christ needs to be what drives everything in your life. We all define ourselves in, in some ways by one relationship. And the question is, is that a lasting enough relationship to actually put your hope in? Because some of us define our relationship by our, our lives by a relationship that's somewhere in the future, maybe even an unknown future, maybe even a not going to happen future, but I would I, if I would just find that guy, if I could just find that girl, then I, that's my hope, that I will one day meet Mr. Wright or Miss Wright. Of course, then she'll marry you and she'll be Mrs. You and not Wright anymore, but that happens anyway. Uh, Or we define our relationship like, I just, if maybe this is the month that the stick will say positive. And if we could just start our family. But that is a, that is a dangerous thing to put your hope in. Even leaving behind that sometimes children die. Even when they don't die, they break your hearts. And is that your hope? That, that relationship? Everyone who lives in Stafford County knows that it can't be your friends. Because friends up and move. Or Uncle Sam tells them, this is not your home. And in fact, you may be homeless. If, if, you're, if those relationships aren't defined by one more solid relationship than them, they will always lead to hopelessness. Always. But if there is a relationship that cannot 
perish. If there is a relationship that could never be defiled, if there is a relationship that just will never fade, if you could cling to that relationship, all of the perishable, defilable, fadeable relationships, they don't, they don't become nothing, but they become redefined. And you, because your hope is deeper than those other relationships. Peter tells us in these nine verses, or six verses, seven verses, God gives you hope, God guards your hope, and God guarantees your hope. First, God gives you, gives you hope in these first verses, verses uh, in verse 3 here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God gives you hope. Jesus begin, or sorry, Peter begins the sentence with an explosion of praise to God, and he ends the sentence talking about inexpressible joy that belongs to you who belong to Jesus. He says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has caused you to be born again. And we talked about this a little bit in Backyard Bible Camp, and maybe, parents, you know the answer also, and you can raise your hand as well. How many of you caused yourself to be born? How many of you had a part in your conception? Not many. Maybe not any, by the lack of hands. You were all pretty passive, I guess. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ caused you to be born again. Just as you had no say in how your father and mother caused you to be born, it is your Father in heaven who caused you to be born again according to His mercy. According to His mercy. God the Father has begotten you anew. The language of Scripture is drastic and dramatic. You are not the sum of all your parts, the things that you've done and the things done to you. You are a new creation. In fact, all that you have done actually has been counted against Christ's record. All that Christ has done is counted on your record. It's the definition of being justified. To have a righteousness imputed to you and your unrighteousness imputed to Christ, counted against Him. All of this according to mercy. It's why we can't get enough of songs about mercy at hope of Christ. Your mercy, thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart. A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing. 
we used to sing the song. These songs are so old now that we used to sing them in Raleigh when I was a worship leader. And I had someone come up to me and ask about the last line of that, our opening song. He's like, I don't get that. That doesn't sound theologically accurate. Uh, the, you know, more happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. He's like, shouldn't we be as happy as they are? And even then, I knew enough to say, are you insane? But now even more, of course not. Of course not. The glorified, the saints in heaven will never say goodbye to their best friend. Never. There's no place in the new heavens and new earth that you will move to that will be like, oh, well, I guess I'll text you occasionally. That's not going to happen. We'll be together forever. The glorified saints in heaven will never lose a daughter, will never have to worry. Of course they're more happy than we are. Their hope is realized. Their hope has turned to sight. The instrument of accomplishing your new birth, your living hope, not a fading hope, not a passing hope, a living hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is alive. That's why it's a living hope. You cannot have a living hope in a dead Savior. That's not a living hope. You cannot have a living hope in a resurrected, air quote, Savior. If the resurrection of Jesus is just a nice story, then you find as much hope in the gospel as you find in the Lord of the Rings. It's a nice story. It has a happy ending. Sure, there's a lot of hard things that happen in the middle. But in the end, everything sad comes untrue, and isn't it nice? Wouldn't it be nice if that were true? And so we have hope. That's a horrible hope. Your living hope is available to you because Christ is alive. He sits at the Father's side. He intercedes for you. He lives to intercede for you. The writer of Hebrews says. And so, yes, you're not home, but you're not homeless. And Christ is going to make everything new, even as he's begun to work that in you. And so new that even the whole world and creation and the kingdom of this age will be gone. And it will be a new earth and a new world order and a new kingdom. You know, Tim Keller, it's hard to not keep quoting Tim Keller, but he said, you know, we have these, you know, there's, you can be, we have this idea that you can either be known well or loved well. Because if someone really knows you, they probably can't really love you. 
Like, that's our biggest fear, isn't it? That someone would know absolutely everything about me because then they wouldn't be able to love me. But then we, the other side isn't very good either. Like, to be not known and loved is just fake. It's mushy. Like, yes, you say you love me, but you don't really know me. That's why dating is so hard. I mean, dating is used car salesmen at best. I mean, you are hiding everything wrong with that car. I mean, you're trying to roll back the odometer. You are, I mean, you're pouring like STP starter in the, in the tank so that it doesn't sputter when they turn the key. Like, you, you are practically lying at every turn and claiming, I just want someone who loves me for who I am, even while you won't tell the person who you are at all, because of the fear, if you know me, you won't love me. How incredible that we have a God who knows you even better than you and loves you. He loves you. God loves you. Yes. Yes. We can even become slightly unpresbyterian if we think about it enough. God loves you. God gives you hope. But God also guards your hope. In verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You've been born into a living hope to an inheritance that is being kept in heaven for you by God himself. An inheritance that's so secure that all Peter can use, the only words Peter can use to describe it are negative words. What it isn't. It's not perishable. It can't perish. Your inheritance and therefore your hope cannot die. Your inheritance cannot be defiled. Your inheritance cannot fade away. This is language... Peter talking about inheritance, he's using Old Testament language. In the Old Testament, in Israel, what was the inheritance that was always being talked about? It was the land. It was the promised land. That was their inheritance. I mean, you didn't sell your land outside of your clan. You didn't, and at the end of, in the year of Jubilee, you got your land back. Land, that was your inheritance. But all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Old Testament, you realize, like, the land is perishable. The land can be defiled as it was so often by God's people. And the land can fade away as you're exiled and lose not only your property, but your name. Your inheritance in heaven will not die, cannot be defiled. It is undefilable. Like, let that sink in. The inheritance in Israel, could be defiled by Israel's sin. Your inheritance cannot be defiled by your sin. That's 
incredible. That's incredible. Your inheritance will never die. It can't be defiled. It will never fade away. It is being kept in heaven for you. But the thing is, an inheritance that's that great is only that great. Like, it's one thing to guard your inheritance, but what else needs to be guarded for you to get your inheritance? You. I mean, it's not enough for me to have stocked away millions of dollars for my, my son, my only son, so that he can take care of his sisters, and, uh, which is n- none of this is true, by the way. So, Jacob, don't get excited. But, like, it would be one thing for me to make sure that I'm putting all this aside and saving it all. But, like, like two things have to happen besides that inheritance existence. Like, Jacob has to not be a knucklehead and, like, walk away from it all. And Jacob has to outlive me. Right? I mean, one thing about inheritance, you got to outlive the dude if you want to receive the inheritance. And so, God guards you. God doesn't just give you hope and guard your hope, but He guards you. In verse 5. It's one thing for the hope to be kept. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's not only your inheritance that's being kept in heaven. You are being kept for your inheritance. You cannot lose it, not because of anything you're doing, but because of all that God is doing. And yes, the the conduit, the tool, the, the pipeline he uses for that is faith. But it's God who's keeping you. It's God who's guarding you. This is a weak illustration, but it's the best I could think of. Uh, uh, so Amy and I went to the to General Assembly, and we went to a concert on Wednesday night. And for the sake of argument, let's say I bought the tickets. I didn't. Rich bought the tickets, but that kind of makes the argument weird. So... Uh, I buy the tickets. Let's say the tickets were really expensive, too. They weren't. They were 20 bucks. But this is my story. So they were $500 tickets each. Really good concert. You never knew what Indelible Grace was doing with their hymns. But so uh, I buy the tickets for us. Amy's super excited about this. We get to the door, and they scan the ticket code. And they say, oh, Mr. Bailey, I'm sorry. Um, it turns out you gave us $490 for each of those tickets. And so you are $10 short each. And so I say, whew. And I look at my wife and say, well, that's too bad. Boy, that's, I was looking forward to that. Well, what do you want to do now? Let's, uh, like, and I start walking away. What is my wife going to do? Like, if she has a heavy purse, I'm going to be in trouble because she's going to hit me. And say, hey, and she'll say words that you kids aren't allowed to say. And I don't say them from the pulpit ever, but Mrs. Bailey says them a lot. (laughs) Anyway, she's going to call me things that I deserve to be called because she's going to be like, are you kidding me? You spent $490 to get us here, 
and you don't have it to get us here? So let's put this in God's perspective, in God's realm. God, from eternity past, planned your salvation, sent His Son into time to accomplish your salvation, sent His Spirit to convict you and convince you that God has done all of this, and He's going to get you right up to almost across the line and then say, listen, the rest is up to you. I feel like I've done enough. Like, if your salvation... If your salvation is dependent even 1% on what you do, then your salvation is 100% dependent on what you do. If God will get you all the way here, but not here, then your hope is hopeless because you, if you are honest with yourself, are a horrible place to put your hope. It is an awful idea to put your hope in yourself that I can save me, I can do this, I can get this right. You are being guarded for this hope. God is, has guaranteed that you will be a part of this, that this inheritance is unperishable. It cannot be defiled. It will never fade away. It is being kept for you in heaven just as you are being guarded for this salvation that will be revealed to you in the end. And now it feels like I've gone through the entire outline and we've only done half of the sentence. And so write this down, partly because I couldn't get any G's out of it, Verses 6 through 9, more focused than the first three of establishing your hope, is more of a therefore. Nothing can kill your hope, so don't let it. Nothing can kill your hope. So don't let it. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. All of these things are true. Your inheritance, your hope, your salvation in Christ. And often we assume that means that it's going to make everything easier here. 
Peter says, these things are true even though you have suffered a lot of trials. You have suffered a lot of grief. And he says, but I mean, when you go through trials and, and, and various kinds of, of grief, it's your faith is being tested. Now this, like in a, in a genuine Gen Xer, I will tell you, I hate. Because I have just a, I have this unhealthy despising of tests. If I smell a test, I will intentionally tank the test. So true story, I went to one of the ROTC branches my senior year in high school, won't say which one, um, they gave me this test on a computer. I'm sure everyone knows what it is. I'm not going to call it by its name because I'll get it wrong. Like the ASVAB, I don't know. Yeah. See, I also didn't want to say it because it sounds like the kids will be like, oh, he does say bad words. Uh, so anyway, this test, I took the test. The dude walks out. He comes back in and he says, hey, listen, some, there was some glitch in the computer. Um, so we lost your score. And so, uh, you know, the average score is 50%. So we're just going to give you the 50%. I mean, unless you want to take it again. And it took like 10 minutes to take the test. It wasn't an awful test. But he said it to me, and he's looking at me. And as he said it, I'm thinking, that's not true. You are testing me to see, because I know I got more than half of these questions right. I mean, these were not difficult questions. And after all, you're just trying to get into the military. How hard can it be? And so, but I just said, but I, in my despising of tests, I looked the man in the eye and I said, that's fine. And honestly, he was taken aback. He said, really? And I said, yeah, great, whatever, 50%, sounds about right. He's like, I mean, you don't want to take it again? I mean, it's like a 15-minute, like, nope, you said you lost it. That's too bad. Let's give me a 50% and move on. And, and that was the extent of my military career. <laughs> and that's how I view everything, even in the Bible, when it talks about tests, the tested genuineness of your faith. See, I knew you didn't believe in me, Jesus. And that's not what tests are for. Even your teachers and school kids, they give you tests so that you know what you know. Tests are for your sake, not for the teacher's sake. The tested genuineness of my faith is so that as these trials come and I am dragged through them kicking and screaming and in the middle of them a I am still crying out to Jesus. Please hold on to me. I can't bear this. It is I who see the genuineness of my faith, not Jesus. He knew the genuineness of your faith far before the trial came. This trial comes so that you can learn the genuineness of your faith, that it is more precious than gold, gold that that perishes. Even though it's tested by fire, it eventually perishes. But your faith is 
imperishable. And it burns, and it hurts, and it stinks. And Jesus says, yes, cry out, how long? Yes, cry out, where are you? Yes, cry out, why? Just don't stop crying out. He says, as as we go through this, the result is praise and glory and honor. And it's unclear, even in the Greek, who is receiving the praise and glory and honor. Is it that as your faith is tested and it comes through the fire, that God receives praise and glory and honor? Well, that's sometimes true. Like, as we come through and we see that God has not abandoned us, we do praise God. We do give God glory. We do honor God as we see that he's never been absent, even as it's felt so quiet. But also, is it possible that it results in praise and glory and honor for you, God's child? And could that even be possible, that God would praise and give glory and honor to you, you weak-faithed sheep? In 1 Corinthians 4, there's this beautiful verse that, that Paul writes. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness. And we all hear that and think, and then you're going to get yours. He will bring to light what's hidden in the darkness. He will expose the motives of the heart. Uh Uh-oh. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. How incredible that all God is saying to you is, cling to me. That's it. I will give you the hope you need. I will guard your hope and I will guard you. All you have to do is cling to me and I will praise you in the end. You will receive praise from God. I love how Peter's just amazed that this new church as it expands is full of of people who've never seen Jesus. Like Peter, who could at any time recall back to mind conversations, you know, hard conversations, light conversations, just he could just bring to mind all these things at any time he wanted for the encouragement he needed. And he's like, but you, you all believe in him and you've never met him. That's incredible. What incredible faith. And it sounds like he's repeating himself, doesn't it? So you believe in him, even though you, you didn't see him, and you, and you believe in him now, even though you can't see him right now. Even though you can't see him right now. You believe in him. And I think he's not just doubling up his sentence. 
I think, I know that some of us in the room are either right now or have been in moments when you just can't see him. I can't see you right now. But I believe. I believe you. I need you to help me overcome my unbelief. Peter doesn't have this strange notion that trials are some necessary ingredient for lemonade. He doesn't think that trials come because you've got some sin that needs to be dealt with. Peter wants to prepare God's people. He wants to prepare you and to prepare me to understand that trials, hardship, Disappointments, testings, sufferings, they just come. This world is broken. God will make all things new one day. And even when you cannot see Jesus, you can believe that he's still interceding for you. That he's still with you and for you. He still affectionately prays for you. Sometimes joy is inexpressible because it's just, it's too overwhelming. It's too big. There's, a, there's nowhere, there's, there aren't words enough for it. And I've talked about this before. I love words like that, inexpressible. A word that means I don't have any words. I love that. But sometimes joy is inexpressible because <coughs> it's just hard to find. It's hard to remember. And in those times, it's great to be reminded you are being guarded. You are being guarded through faith for a salvation that will be revealed to you one day. Let's pray. Father, indeed, blessed are you, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because you caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have granted us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled unfading you are guarding our hope in heaven even as you guarantee our hope you keep us thank you that your grip on us is not dependent on our grip on you and so even when we can't see you Jesus Remind us of the hope we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.